Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm thrilled to have on just someone that I, I've looked up to and has been an amazing mentor of mine for many, many years. Uh, he's a tremendously successful lawyer. He's an author of two best-selling books. The most recent one is The United States of Opioids. Keep messing that, uh, <laughs> that way to say that up. He is, and like legitimately, I know a lot of experts when it comes to uh, scotch and that, that whole world, like this guy just like, <laughs> he blows it all the way. Uh, and, and just, you'll tell, he has such a passion for helping people and is an all-around good guy. It's like, you know, when I'm, you know, I'm Jewish and I like to show how Jews are making the world a better place. And this guest, Harry Nelson, um, is someone that consistently inspires me and is someone that I'm pointing to as I'm like, wow, you know, I'm so proud to be in the same tribe as this guy. So uh, with no further ado, have on uh, noted celebrity lawyer, Harry Nelson. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, Lift Your Legacy is committed to helping you live a more authentic and meaningful life. That being said, if I could ask you to share this podcast with someone that you think would get value from the message, that would be fantastic. In addition, I wanted to make you aware that along with the podcast, I do offer executive coaching. I help people who are successful and highly motivated, who want to see extreme, or not even so extreme, maybe just a small change that in their life. I want to help them get to the next level. What does that mean specifically? Creating more peace in your relationships with yourself, growing your business, clarifying your career, and even if you need a little bit of help losing some weight or getting more healthy, I do that also. I'm not for everyone, but for those people that are invested in making their life better and taking the next step, I highly recommend you consider me as a coach for you. Now, how do you get in touch? Well, you found the podcast. I wanted to tell you also my email, Jacob, my first name, Jacob at Lift your legacy dot live feel free please to reach out there or on all any or all of my social media channels i'd be thrilled to give you a complimentary half an hour conversation to see if we might be a good fit to work together and now with no further ado i ask you to please sit back and enjoy the show I am thrilled to have today a, a, a close dear friend who I, I, I admire from afar, often by far the most knowledgeable man when it comes to scotch that I've ever met, um, and, and also a, a, very, a very talented uh, lawyer and spokesperson, Harry Nelson. So thank you very much for joining me today. Jacob, great to be with you. What so, an honor. You know, it's, it's been crazy over the time that we've known each other you have become, you know, you were doing a lot of work in healthcare, but you've really become the voice of this opioid epidemic and have written extensively about it, written books about it. Tell me a little bit about, if you could just take us back to the beginnings of your legal career, how you got into the healthcare world and then how you became so fascinated about the opioid epidemic. Yeah, absolutely. I, by the way, I think there's a lot of important voices out there, so I'm, I'm happy to, to add to this, but I... 
But so I, you know, I got involved. I got interested in healthcare law um, when I was in. I got interested in, in in college. Really, I was. I grew up in the Midwest, and spent, and then I was at University of Michigan and spent a summer in Washington D.C. working for a congressman. And I discovered I spent the whole summer writing constituent letters back, the letters back to constituents about Medicare, Medicare, Medicaid, and um, Social Security. So I went back to school. I had a couple of two years of college left, but I was uh, I was fascinated with this whole regulatory uh, um, state that we have and how it really, you know, this part of the government that nobody thinks about really has such a huge impact on our lives. So when I went to law school, it was very much in my mind uh, to get involved in regulatory work and all the rulemaking and the way that sort of business, industry and government come together in, the re, in, regu, in form, making regulations and living by regulations. And, uh, and so I, I, you know, it, was, it wasn't, I'll be honest, I, I wasn't sure it would be healthcare. I knew I wanted to do something regulatory. And then after law school, I ended up finding a, a great firm that was uh, in Chicago at the time doing work for the big local universities, doing a lot of work on, it was a time when there was a lot of regulatory change in healthcare. So I was working for these big academic medical centers doing work on clinical research issues, Medicare issues, um, issues around HIPAA, which was a brand new data privacy security. This whole different, you know, it's an area where if you're, if you're a distracted person like me, it's really interesting because there's a lot of different pieces that make our healthcare health systems work. And I, I learned those. And, uh, and, th and then I, I, I still at that time, even when I was in Chicago in the late 90s, I thought of myself as a university regulatory, health regulatory lawyer. And then it was only when I came out to California that I, I started working with doctors and, uh, and really, and that was what drove me into the work, the interest in addiction and recovery and overdoses. I started working with doctors who themselves had become addicted in the course of medical practice, you know, for a whole range of issues, but often because they were in hospitals, had easy access to these really powerful medications, the opioids, and, uh, and they got addicted, and I started working with them on helping many of them lost their licenses, had to really rebuild their lives. And in the course of working with them, I found that I was changed, that, you know, I sort of learned so much about myself just through working closely and becoming and developing friendships with people who had done the work of recovery and had this kind of profound honesty and uh, about their own brokenness, and it sort of forced me to look inward and look at my issues, which weren't specifically drugs, but, but, but very much, you know, my own anxiety, my own disordered eating, all of these personal issues that I never really thought about. I, I found that the more time I spent uh, uh, in working in recovery, and, and it went from being doctors to drug treatment centers, outpatient residential programs, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, the more I really felt uh, a, a strong connection with um, recovery community and the principles of recovery. Speak to me a little bit about that because it's really a fascinating idea that I think there's a certain stigma behind people that do drugs or people that have addictions and then the rest of functioning, you know, America. And a lot of times it, it, it is very comfortable for people to sort of put a, you know, a healthy distance between this is what they do on, on that side of the track. And then certainly, I guess, in a, it's sounding like in a, both in a professional and in a personal way, you started realizing that a lot of these issues are much more close to home. And then eventually, you know, things that you yourself possess, be it anxiety, be it whatever it might be. So how does a person begin to um, address or begin to accustom themselves to 
these kinds of addictive character traits? How does a person start to look within and see if it's there or help people who they're close to be that their family or their friends start to work on these kinds of important issues? So, um, you know, for me, I, I, it's, a, it's a good question. I think for me, what I, what I, I, we live in a society that very much has this binary idea, like that some of us are okay and some of us are not okay, right? Some of us are, uh, are addicts or have, are mentally ill or, you know, and I, and so what I started to realize in the course of working with people who have done this work was that, that that binary is completely false, right? We are all, first of all, we're all constantly changing, but we, the reality is like we are all on a continuum and, and constantly moving along it around issues of, um, uh, of, of underlying kind of mental health, mental wellness, you know, uh, addictive issues. And, and the reality is like when you start looking deeper, what you see is that there's a biochemical piece to all, everything, right? There's a genetic piece, there's, there's all these bio, biological pieces, there's a psychological and a social piece, right? Uh, uh, and there's a spiritual piece. And, and we think of, we tend to really only have trouble, you know, we used to only think of mental health and addiction as not being biological. Uh, and, and now, and, so, and some people have shifted to completely viewing them as just simply being a disease. And, I, and the more time that I've spent with them, the more I think we really are only beginning to fully understand that, they, that, these, that these conditions have real, and by the way, I think you could say this about all conditions. I believe this is true about pain and about a lot of health issues is there is a biological, biochemical piece. There's a psychosocial, that's two different issues, psychological and social piece. Uh, um, that, that relates to the, our health from them and a spiritual piece. And so I think that, um, we, you know, we have a lot of work to do. But once you sort of unpack that, it has profound implications for how you live, how you raise your kids, how you treat the people around you, and how we think about what, you know, what the work is for all of us. So that, that means that it, it sounds to me that a person can become a lot more compassionate about themselves. I'm not a bad person if I do X, Y, and Z, if I have this compulsion, whatever it might be. And also that it's not like there's something wrong with my friend, my family member that's going through this, but rather, that it, again, in a lot of ways, it's like they have a cold. It's not a moral judgment. No one wants to be in this situation and I can help them and try to provide, even if it's like love and, and, and acceptance versus kind of you know, there's something wrong with you. Is that is that sort of what you're saying? I 100% agree with that. And just to take it a step further, I, I would encourage people to think. You know, there there tend to be three sets of three sets of issues that you you see that are kind of in the background for an awful lot of people. Um, addict, addictive issues and mental health issues start with trauma. So you know, people go through specific experiences in their life that put them more at risk and. We don't fully understand the relationship of trauma. There's a lot of issues of unacknowledged, unaddressed mental health. But the third category of issue that I think we're, I think we're living in a time when all of us, just by being in this moment in time, are living under profound stress, living in a time of profound isolation, right? We're communicating across digital devices. We're not connecting personally. So I, I, I think that it's, it's, I agree 100%. It's compassion, empathy, sort of, you know, is, is a huge piece of it. But I also think we need to, like, just sort of get a better nuanced sense that we are literally all, we're not all equally at risk because a person who undergoes severe trauma has, has issues that need to be 
you know, that need uh, more care and attention, but we are, we are all under some level of, of threat and risk that we need to manage. So the, 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 the book that, that really changed a lot of my thinking was a book called Chasing the Scream. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but uh, about, sure. about the, the, you know, the, the world of, of drug addiction and just how, well, and you know, he actually wrote another book about the antidepressant, you know, just how easy it is to get the antidepressants. This is hopefully what you could explain a little bit was that, you know, a lot of people, um, the reason why they are depressed is because there are objectively things that are very difficult about their lives. And rather than necessarily just trying to numb that pain or just, you know, make them feel okay, it's this concept of like addressing the issues. Like, have you had a job change? Do you enjoy what you're doing at work? You know, you, you, like you said, like with access to the internet, with Instagram, so much more so it's like you're now comparing yourself against this infinite game of people that have infinite numbers of resources and it's 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 shocking how much that plays into your psych your psychology of how good you feel about yourself, how good of a job you're doing, all of these kinds of things which our ancestors never had to deal with. Yeah, no, hundred percent. The book, uh, yeah, a fantastic book, is uh, Jan Hari and uh, Mate. Yeah, I mean, really important. A lot of really important work out there. The um, what, was, what I was going to say, you know, the way I think about it, you have to be really careful because. This is true of opioids, and it's also true of antidepressants and other medications. Is there are some people who need these things, right? And so the challenge, the trick is that they only address symptoms. They don't get to deeper issues. And that's not to say that we sh they shouldn't be used. Some people, there are people whose lives are being saved because they're on a drug that's addressing the symptoms. But what I think our healthcare system doesn't do that we really need to educate people and provide support for across our society is how to do the underlying work and, and to realize it's not the same. Some people may be, it may be appropriate to be on a medication chronically uh, um, to deal with the symptoms, but for, and for some people it may just be temporary and we have to stop judging it and shaming people or, or being absolutist. It's really a case where we just got to, we have to understand there's two different things to deal with. There's symptoms. And then there's underlying, you know, uh, underlying process that's going on in our, in our bodies, in our heads, uh, uh, and in the world around us that we need to, um, that we need, we need, we have work, we have work that we can do. So, yes, definitely. So your, your most, your most recent book is United States of Opioids. Tell me a little bit about how, how you became like hyper-focused on this specific issue and how as a nation we became so addicted to opioid use. So, so I, it's funny, I call my book the United States of Opioids, although I'm really, I'm interested in the larger question of a crisis of drug use and overdoses that go back, go back beyond opioids. The opioid, I, you know, my career kind of coincided with, I started practicing uh, law in 94 and that was not, uh, Oxycontin, the main drug that drove, that fueled the tension of the opioid crisis in the late 90s, came out in 95 uh, from Purdue Pharma, was, it was, that was really the time it started. So just to go back to where, at the beginning of my career, we were living in a time when pain was considered the fifth vital sign. Medicare and the Joint Commission for Accreditation of Hospitals uh, for healthcare organizations required uh, patients, be be the patients be surveyed on their pain. And then what happened was, in the early 2000s, we began to start paying attention a little bit to this rising uh, data of, of, of overdose deaths climbing the ranks of accidental causes of death. 
by the way, some overdoses are intentional, some are accidental, but when we were including overdoses as accidental, they were, they were beating out traffic, they were eventually beating out gun deaths, uh, fire, right, they were, they were like, so it slowly over the 2000s we started to wake up and realize that there was a problem first with prescription opioids, and that kind of uh, peaked, the crackdown really got heavy by 2008 on prescription opioids, that, you know, doctors were using Oxycontin and, and Vicodin, then you, all, then you start to see, as soon as doctors started prescribing less, uh, you start seeing heroin, people moved to heroin, right? And you have different pathways. You have some people who are turning to drugs after a, a medical incident got them on drugs, and some people who were just in some other kind of, we're using them, well, people would say recreationally, although I would say recreational use is a form of spiritual pain, right? Uh, but, but spiritual relief that people are looking for. But uh, um, you start to see heroin go, take off, and then fentanyl. So I was, I was living originally through helping these doctors who were getting impaired, but then I started seeing, I started, I started dealing, helping doctors. I actually represented doctors who were uh, prosecuted for under-treating pain and not getting enough pain medicine. And then that flipped over a couple of years to doctors getting in trouble for prescribing too much. And I started working and seeing more and more doctors. I started dealing with overdoses, getting calls in the aftermath of, a, of an overdose and seeing this explosion of addiction treatment. And I, don't, I think it's people, a lot of people don't pay attention to the fact that we, we didn't have insurance coverage for uh, addiction treatment until 2012, right? That was an outgrowth of the Affordable Care Act. Before then, it was very rare. You had to have a particular kind of insurance to actually get covered. So a lot of, there, you know, what happened was we, we started finally waking up to the problem, how big a problem this was and covering it, but it didn't make it better. It just made it, it created some access, but it also led to a lot more problems, a lot of fraud, a lot of, of lack of safety, people dying in treatment programs. So I was working on this whole body of stuff, and I started to just feel like it wasn't enough for me to wait for the next overdose to happen and that I got a call on. I needed to get a message out there. I feel like we need to start educating the public, and we, I, needed, I felt an obligation to start educating people and trying to add some clarity to the conversation. I, I wanted to just jump back to something that really stuck 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 out to me about you saying that recreational heroin use is is a response to spiritual pain. What do you, what do you mean by that? I mean, if we look at the so what's different about opioids, and part of the reason they attracted attention was because you have all these you know kids, late teens, early twenties. Uh, um, it's an all age drug, but you started seeing this very young population that was using them recreationally, largely without any physical pain. So a lot of times the classic story that people tell about opioids is, I heard, you know, is like, I'll use my, my, one of my sports heroes, Brett Favre, right? Brett Favre, quarterback, Green Bay Packers, uh, hurts his, his, I think it was a knee injury, he's rehabbing, he gets on Vicodin, and he gets hooked on Vicodin, right? That's the classic story that people tell about opioid addiction through uh, injury, and a medical procedure. What we started seeing was these 19-year-old kids, and I say 19, I literally know, I personally, as I'm sitting here, I can think of four different moms who are friends who have lost sons, um, in one case, two sons, to, uh, to, at, at the age of 19. And these were, by and large, not people who had any kind of physical injury. They were using drugs. So the question is, why were they using drugs? And we have a lot of work to do to unpack what's going on you know, was it just a feeling of being isolated, a sense of a lack of purpose? But I, I, I think that, it, it, that we're really talking not necessarily 
about um, unaddressed mental health issues so much as about a chronic, pervasive sense of unhappiness, of people feeling profoundly lonely, of really not feeling purpose, and feeling relief. In, and opioids are really powerful because in addition to reducing pain, they're euphoric. So you really, you know, they, they, there is this very temporary sense of happiness, right? You talk to people who have taken heroin, uh, and I'm not intending to make an ad for taking heroin, God forbid, but if they say, I've heard somebody say, a friend of mine say, it's like kissing God, right? It's this intense pleasure. And so I think that, that if you really look at what that is, we, can, we tend to use language of recreational use, but it's really a, uh, um, uh, to me, it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a spiritual crisis in America. And by the way, that ties in, you know, for me, that when you start, when you look at the, the all drug overdoses, what we see is that they start going up year over year beginning in the 1970s. And what you see is that was a time of a lot of social change in America that ties into what I think, what I would describe as a spiritual crisis. We start seeing uh, fewer and fewer people connected to organized religion, right? We start seeing fewer and fewer the traditional family kind of receded, and those were those were forces of social repression, but they were also deep sources of social connection, and and uh, um, and so the less connected people are the more we are all at risk of overdose. And I think that's what's going on with, uh, with the younger population um, that's basically going to parties and, and coming home and dying in their own beds with opioids. So it, it's overwhelming. So th this is in the, in the you know, private sector. These people are not involved in the healthcare system at all until you know, there's an overdose or something got in a lot of cases. Right. So, and then it's sounding like in the, in the professional world, it's cycling between not prescribing enough, prescribing too much. And, and so it's a great title, you know, this sense of like having a, you know, a prescription to just kind of saving America. What, what is like, how do we start? I'm just like, I'm racking my brain. It's like, it's so true. And you're seeing these, I, I saw two separate studies. One said that 80% of Americans don't like their job and another 80% of millennials worldwide uh, feel bad about themselves on an ongoing basis. And it's just like, you're looking at those kinds of numbers and it's like, oh my God, like what, what are we going to do? So what are the, I guess in your mind on a like from, from the perspective of legislation and government and then down to the individual, what are some of the steps that we can take to start, making some headway in this battle? So I, I think of it, again, on three levels, right? I, I, in the book, part of what I try to say is we need to think of the opioid crisis and the overdose crisis as three distinct issues. One is the number of people dying, overdoses, and suicides. How do we bring that down? Number two is how do we, how do we actually get effective treatment for the people who are already addicted? And number three is how do we address this broad social crisis? So on the issues around overdose deaths, I, I argue in the book that we have... Um, we have an answer for, for overdose deaths, right? right? A lot of other advanced industrialized countries that have the same problem have dealt with this by decriminalization, by getting police to act and law enforcement to start acting to divert people out of the, you know, people in possession of small quantities into treatment, uh, and also ultimately by creating places where people can use, people who are going to use drugs, making sure they use them safely, having clean needles, having places where, there's, where people are using drugs and there's quick overdose response, like the, um, the overdose reversal drug uh, Narcan available. That's the easy, in some ways that's the easiest problem. We are, in the U.S., we're 4% of the world population and we're 12.5% of the world overdose deaths, according to the U.N. So we could easily, that's a fixable problem. 
Then the next layer of the problem is, what do we do for all the people who need access to care? And part of the challenge there is we need more evidence-based care. We're seeing a big movement towards medication-assisted treatment, uh, um, for example, uh, buprenorphine for, as a drug, Suboxone, as a, uh, and, and we, need, we have a lot of work to do there. The piece that's most interesting to me is that social crisis. What do we do at the social crisis? And here, my argument in the book is that we're not going to solve that problem within healthcare or with government policy. We need a community partnership model where we really begin to raise the level of awareness and teach people the skills of prevention and early intervention in our schools, in our workplaces, in our, we have to rebuild civic community, in our faith communities, and we need to do it together. Um, and, and, and it's not, it's not, it's not going to be a stop on a dime, but the answer to addressing loneliness is really, you know, work is, is actually addressing, having, finding ways to get people to connect with each other. And, and we've got to find something to fill the void. We've got to call attention to the danger of, of technology, the danger of isolation, and we've got to find other resources. There was a great piece in the, in the Sunday New York Times by um, Nicholas Kristof wrote about all these countries that now have a minister of loneliness. We need, we need to build an infrastructure to address loneliness. By the way, the loneliest generation on college campuses is the current, uh, the current millennial, you know, post-millennials post -millennial, post on campus. And uh, uh, they say thir over 30% of people say they, have, they don't have one friend. And you also see it at the other end, you see it with seniors, huge problems uh, of loneliness among seniors and massive opportunities to, for health benefits just by having, just by getting a phone call every day and knowing that somebody else cares about you. It's such, a, it's such a heartbreaking thing because it, in so many ways it seems, on one hand, like so doable, you know, and, and, and so achievable. And on the other hand, it's like, if we can't even start to, you know, if we're still stuck in this, I don't want to call it medieval mentality, but this old school mentality of, you know, drug users or criminals, and, again, you know, and, 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 and that they need to be isolated and, and thrown far away. And, and just like the descent that a person would go to, you know, in order to get that, that fix and what ends up, what they have to start amounting their, what they have to start doing. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy concept. So on one hand, it seems like it's very doable. On the other hand, it seems, you know, extremely, it's extremely daunting as a challenge. I'm curious, as you have gotten out there, you know, and, and I know this touches on like political issues and the 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 way that our country looks at, it, at, at things and the polarization of the, the, the political, you know, spectrum of the country, as you've gotten out there and has become, like you said, one of many, but, you know, a, a prominent voice in that world, how has this message been received? Is, it, is there a lot of pushback? people understanding? Are we trying to find solutions or is it still you're the crazy guy that has this, you know, random, uh, you know, kind of like canary in the coal mine sort of ideal? No, you know, it's funny. I have, I found incredible allies out there and I'm, I think there's an awakening to it. It's been, I, I was joking with somebody, you know, I, uh, one of the funny things for me as a Jewish guy living in, you know, religious Jewish guy living in uh, Southern California is I found some of my greatest allies on this issue I was in Central Florida two weeks ago in, the, in this very conservative, very Christian uh, environment uh, of, uh, of people who, if we actually sat down and talked politics, I think we'd have a lot profound disagreements on a lot of issues. And, I, and same thing in Georgia. And what I've learned is, I mean, what I, and I say this in the book, I really do believe it. Like, th this is an issue that touches everybody, right? These, these drugs are equal opportunity killers. 
it's not true that the problem is the same for everybody, right? There is there is a link. So communities that have been hard hit socioeconomically have have, been, have have many of these have the particularly the addiction issue is worse. Um, but I think this is to me I, one of the things that's most exciting to me is that this this model is being received um, and uh, well. The, the, what I've learned is the people who are most threatened by the conversation are the people who already sort of have a strong locked-in position and don't want, you know, there are, what I learned is like, for example, not everybody in the behavioral health community wants the business community or the faith community weighing in. And every, there's a lot of distrust, right? A lot of people are nervous. When I talk about the faith community, I've learned that not everybody loves that, right? But in, in, that plays really well in religious areas of the country. but. In the Northeast, for example, where there's a big commitment to harm reduction, I found people are like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? You're taking us back. You're going to tell us the answer's all in, you know, in God. And uh, I just think we need to really be nuanced and find a way to bring people together and say there's no one right pathway, right? The answer, you don't solve this problem just by being religious or just by doing this or doing that. This is a complex, evolving issue, and, and we just need to find ways to connect people and also, and the one thing I'd say is we, need, we have a lot of work to do on education and awareness because there's still so many ways that we unintentionally shame each other on so many aspects of this, uh, this problem. So it, it's, it, it, is, it is absolutely fascinating that at the end of the day, it's like this, this actual killer that's going to come to basically humble us, I guess, to a certain extent to realize that we need each other and we can learn from each other. And as much as... We, we want to think that we're be like an intellectually open community. Like you said, the idea of let's actually suggest that religious people have some value to them, or let's suggest that you can learn something from the scientific community or, you know, business people aren't all bad. It's like crazy because there is such sec, you know, like sectional thinking, but at the same time, it's like, we can't solve this from all the different angles and, and, and nor is, you know, is that the job of one, of one particular group? Um, Tell me, tell me how we can assist you, find out more about what you're doing, promote this, like build something in our own community. I'm super fired up about this. What are next steps? Um, so I, I have, there's a lot of information on my website. There's actually a test you can take, a personal sort of assess your own level of like awareness on harrynelson.com. Um, and I, I'm putting more, I'm, I'm putting more and more resources there. I put a lot of, I put a whole directory of, uh, that's in the book, but I also just made it available of um, of organizations to uh, that are doing important work that that people can plug into. There's a lot of different places to look uh, for that, um, and, and I've also put a glossary on my on HarryNelson.com of all the terms, so you can start to educate yourself and understand these things. I'm the big project I'm most excited about right now. I'm working with a lot of different organizations, some fantastic organizations out there. Um, uh, 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 Shatterproof is one that's doing some great legislative work. The one I'm most excited about is that it's doing this community partnership model, is Project Opioid, and um, we're working with Just Begun. Florida is the first state to really adopt Project Opioid, which was this community partnership model, and um, we're going to be putting up more information on California. Southern California is going to be the second spot. We really want to take this model national. And, and plug in all of the people, the business community, faith communities, and organizations that want to be part of it. And the model there is to think about the problem regionally, to really understand what are the resources on the ground uh, that, that people need, and uh, to 
to help plug people, to connect people. And the thing I'm most excited about is that in the coming weeks, we're, we're um, in discussions with Google, and Google has, a, has agreed, you know, there are very tricky issues when people are putting things into, the, into their search engines, you can see an awful lot about what's going on in their minds. Are they worried about somebody else in their lives? Do they have a problem? Are they an overdose risk? And, and while respecting privacy, you know, there's still an opportunity to make sure that people are getting the re access to resources they need. So that's been a big effort that we're working on, uh, and I'm excited to share more about in the coming months. But HarryNelson.com is the best place to go for to sort of track what I'm what I'm thinking about. That's amazing. Last question for you, and I, I want to acknowledge you and recognize you as, as someone that I've looked up to for a very long time. I didn't even talk to you about the, the scotch. I wanted we'll have to have to do a separate <laughs> one. Now. I totally forgot. But but you know, there is for, for a lot of young younger people listen to this. And I wanted to ask, you are a person who really distinguished themselves, built a very nice career for yourself successful by all, you know, by all definitions, you know, the, the, as a young law student coming out, like, what do I want to do? You could look at your career and be like, that's great. I'm curious about the, your quality of life and like how you relate to yourself now that you are focusing on something like this. Cause it's like, you've sort of moved out of the, it sounds to me like you've moved out of the, you know, how do I build a big law career? And now you're thinking about, in a lot of ways, a very dark subject, a very sad subject, a very difficult subject, and you've moved into this entire other like iteration of what your life's all about. I'm just curious on a personal level, what's your day-to-day -day, like feeling like? What's your, what is your feeling like as you're engaged in all these kind of non-lawyer technically kinds of ideas? No, I, I mean, it's been a, you know, it's a real journey. Like I, I still, I, it's been very, as I approached, I just turned, uh, I'm going to be, I'm 52. So I'm like, uh, so when I was approaching 50, I started really thinking about what my legacy was going to be, what my impact was going to be. And I, and I started to have this terrible thought in my head that I didn't want to like have people at my funeral say, he gave me the best advice in that meeting we were in, right? Like I, I wanted to have a little more impact in the world. And um, it's been deeply satisfying for me. I love the work, you know, is really, I, I've enjoyed the work. I love the work, the relationships with my, my colleagues. I've been, it's very satisfying to build a business. And, it's a, it's a, and, and the ongoing challenge of, you know, giving advice on, on tough problems and working with clients uh, is great. But this work has been, it felt so good to be impactful. But what I've actually discovered is it continues to be a learning, right? Like I, I think like I, I, you just get to go deeper on the issues. So it took me a long time to deal with all this, you know, I, my, my, I, my personally, like I struggle on a daily basis with all these, these deceptive thoughts. So it took me a long time as a younger lawyer to get out of the mode of like, I'm not really worth, like why are people paying me so much for my advice? And to accept that I have something really valuable to offer in the world. And that got me past one step. And I found that the more I go out, you know, as soon as I started getting out in the field, I was like, on this stuff, I was like, how am I holding myself out there as having something to add to this conversation with scientists and doctors who've been doing this, you know, doing the clinical work with parents who've lost kids? Like, what what can I possibly add? And I feel like I constantly, first of all, I, I just learn so much from so many people, but I've learned to process just kind of to adjust to the rhythm of my own, you know, the own my own sort of voices of doubt and to realize that the growth comes from addressing them. And I, I'm happy to say, like, I do go to bed at night exhausted from 
between getting the work done and getting and working on, on these issues, which are really my passion. Um, and it's really, but I do feel like there's a lot more to do, but I feel good. I, don't, I feel good because I'm going to bed exhausted every night uh, from this work. I love it. Harry Nelson, I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time. And the, the work you're doing is so important. And, and I want to wish you a lot of success that you should be able to make this big impact and, and really try to help in these areas that it's so important to. And thank you for having me on. I really take a really, so, uh, so much admiration and respect for what you're doing and really honored to be on your, uh, on your show. You're the best, brother. Thank you so much. All right, man. There you have it, folks, another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, We have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.